Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and Chavruta Yardena Azban. Our daf of the day, Masachet Shkalim, daf Yud Gimel, page 13. And with page 13, we shift from the end of Perak Gimel to the beginning of Perak Dalet, which is Perak, the fourth chapter. As I said before, we are moving very rapidly through Masachet Shkalim. Uh, Yardena, we've got a siyum coming up, believe it or not which is kind of hard to think about since we've just begun the message. I know. So we'll just tell everybody we'll be sending things out about it soon, but it will, God willing, be April 11th, same time as Pesachamon. Uh, oh, no, sorry. It'll no. be 10 a.m. Excuse me, because right. now the clock's changed. So 10 a.m. in the United States and 5 p.m. in Israel. Um, if you would like to share something, you can fill it in the form. We're also going to have a special speaker this time, an archaeologist, hopefully, uh, to talk a little bit about the temple period with us. Um, and we know this was a quick one, but uh, we're looking forward to celebrating and uh, seeing everybody on Zoom again soon. Okay, and with that, I'm going to close off the third parak. Uh, as you've all been realizing, I'm sure, the third parak really spoke about Machatzita Shekel and all the different things that the, she- the Shkalim went to purchase and the funding and how all the funding, even outside of the Machatzita Shekel, how it worked within the temple. Um, when we move on to the, the fourth chapter, we're going, going to see much more about the functions of the Kwanim in the Beit HaMikdash. And that's, you know, particularly in the first mission of the of the fourth parak, but we're going to see it throughout. Okay, Halacha Hey. This is the mission at the very end of the da- uh, It's not the end of the daf. It's the end of the parak, right? It's in the middle of Amud Aleph. Uh, once every 30 days, they would set the prices, basically, of the the supplies that would be in the lishka, in the temple treasury. And that wouldn't be, let's say, wine, flour, oil, that kind of thing. And then, So, for example, if there's a merchant, right, who's going to provide the solet, the fine flour to the lishka, to the temple treasury, and they set the price where they had set the price at four, right, let's say four sa'a per sela, right, that's the amount. And then the general market price, rises, right? It goes up. And instead it's going to be three sa'a per sela that you you get let you get less, right, for your money, which means that the price has gone up. Um the person who's been dealing with the Lishka still has to provide it based on the temple price, right? The lower price. But if the Lishka's price was set um if the temple's price was set at three and the general market price went to four sa'a per sella, then, you have to pro- then the merchant has to provide that same fine flour based on that new market price, which would be four sa'a per sella. Shiyad hektesh al ha'elyonah. Because that way, always, the temple treasury of the consecrated property is always going to be, you know, is always going to triumph, so to speak. Right? Whichever is going to be the higher price, whichever price is set, the temple price is going to be the higher price. And then, this is an interesting one, if the flower became wormy, right? If there's worms in the in the flower, and it became wormy for the merchant, meaning it's ruined, the flower is ruined, he can't sell it, right? He can't sell it. He has to then bear that loss because he's already been contracted to provide that fine flower to the lishka. And likewise, if the wine turns to vinegar, it's vinegar on his head. 
on you know on his pocket on his dime. And he only gets paid, he only gets his money after, quote, the altar, the Mizbeach, is satisfied. Meaning all of the items that have been sacrificed on the altar, or at least they're all ready to be there, right? If he provides, you know, sour wine or wormy flour or whatever, he has to, he has to go back and provide the good stuff. And then we have a very tiny piece of Gemara here, which says as follows. So the merchants would immediately immediately receive their money, meaning they weren't. And and the bottom line, it says the Gemara, or says Rabbi Shimon, there wasn't really a great concern that the food items would spoil because the Kohanim were Zrizin. We come back to this theme of the Kohanim being careful and eager and zealous to be able to make sure that everything runs efficiently and properly, and they would make sure that nothing had a, pr- a chance to spoil. Okay, so Hadran Allah Hatruma, that's the end of chapter three. We move rather rapidly onto chapter four. I'm actually switching books, volumes in my uh, Koran. Uh, I have the Koran paperback. I particularly like it because it's got pictures and things like that that I would not be able to find just from the Vilna Shas. Um, okay, uh, pictures meaning like you know the historical uh, archaeology and that kind of thing maps. Okay, so Perik Perik Dalad Halacha Aleph Manin Elohein Amamunim Sheyuba Mikdash, and this is really just a list of the officials who served in their specific positions in that Beit Mikdash. Yochanan ben Pinchas Alachot Alachot So Yochanan ben Pinchas was responsible for the seals. Achia al nisachim, and Achia was responsible for the libations, meaning wine, the oil. I imagine also the water on Sukkot. I don't know. Mati ben Shmuel al hapaisot. Mati ben Shmuel is responsible for the. This is the lotteries. Mifal hapais is the lottery in Israel, the modern day lottery. Paisot is the lotteries, namely who's going to be. They he would select who's going to be the kohen to do the. For di- which different task of that day? Ptachia al hakinin. Ptachia was responsible for the for pairing the birds, right? For the specific carbonate that were were brought by those who were required to bring birds, um, and you know there is again how much how much money went to the birds and the oversight of the purchase. All of that was on Ptachia, and then Ptachia zil mardzchai. So the Gemara says. That was this. It's fascinating. Like I'm, the I'm stumbling on it because it's a, it's a surprising thing. I think Ptachia is Mordechai. It says this is Mordechai from the Book of Esther. Why was he called Ptachia? Because he would open. He would get into any topic and he would interpret them and explain them. And he knew. 70 languages, all the 70 languages that they knew at the time, so he was called you know, the opener, Ptachia. But really, he was Mordechai from the Book of Esther. Ben Achia Ben Achia was responsible to take care of anybody, any of the Kohenim who were sick with intestinal disease. Nochunya Chofer Shichin. Nochunya was, um, he says he was the well digger, right? Because there are pilgrims who would go to Jerusalem and they needed to make sure they had enough water. Yivini, Karuz, he was the temple crier. Ben Gever al Ni'ilat Sharim. Ben Gever was responsible for locking the gates. 
and unlock uh, in the evening and then unlocking them in the morning. Ben Bavai Mamuna Al Hafkia um Ben Bavai would was responsible for the shreds of the garments, namely they would take the worn out clothing and they would turn them into the wicks for the menorah in the temple for the for the candelabra, right? But it meaning this is the menorah with six six branches and one shamash. Um Ben Arza Adhatsil Ben Arza responsible for the symbol, meaning um to the clash of the symbols, the clang of the symbols, that the Levium should start singing. Hugars Hugras, sorry, Hugras Ben Levi Al Hashir. And Hugras Ben Levi was responsible to make sure that the singing happened. He can he taught them and he conducted the singing in the Beit Mikdash. Beit Garmo, we've already heard his name, Alma Se Lechemapanim. They were responsible for the that was always on the Mizbeach. Beraftinas, we've also heard about them already in the previous parak. Amazek, Torah, they were responsible for the incense, as we discussed. Ve'elazar al-haparuchet u'pinchas ha'malbish. And Elazar was responsible for the parochet, the curtains in the Beit Mikdash. And Pinchas would make sure that everybody was dressed appropriately. Uh, we can call him a valet. And that's it, meaning there's a very careful designation of who's got what job and making sure that everybody did their job. And of course, this is just one snapshot in time because, you know, at other periods of time, other people held these positions. Well, well that's really what the Gemara talks about there is uh, the first comment of the Gemara is, you know, were these all contemporaries? And that's one view. And the other view, which to me makes more sense, is that this was sort of the best person who held this job in the hundreds of years that the Beit HaMikdash existed. Um, so they explore both of those. I'm going to move on. There's a really a lot of nice stuff uh, on uh, Amud Bet here that's very rich. And once they start praising people, sort of they're on the theme of praising people for good deeds, the Gemara now sort of takes a little bit of a turn to talk about sort of the evolution of Torah Sheba Alpat. And everyone here knows I always like when the Gemara gets very meta on itself. I'm a Rabbi Yona. So Rabbi Yona says, Ketiv. Quotes a pasuk, lachain echalek lo barabim et atzumim yechalek shalal. Right? So this is a pasuk that appears in um, Yishayahu, uh, Perak uh, uh, Nun Gimel, Pasuk Yudbet, chapter 53, verse 12, which says, therefore, I will assign him a portion from the multitudes and he will divide spoils with the mighty. Zet Rabbi Akiva. This refers to Rabbi Akiva. Shehitzkin Mishnah umidrash halachot v'hagadot who established Mishnah, Midrash, Halachot, and Agadot. The Yeshimrim, and there are those who say, Elu Anshe Knesset Agdola Tiknu, that this was actually referring to the Anshe Knesset Agdola, who we talked about when we talked about Shimon Atzadik the other day. Um, Ela Matikain, what exactly, so then what did uh, Rabbi Akiva establish? Uh, because there are those who say that, no, Anshe Knesset Agdola did the Mishnah, Midrash, Halachot, and Agadot. Klalot uh, Uprato, generalizations and specifications, right? That Rabbi Akiva sort of developed the way uh, that uh, that you know how one can interpret many of the uh, many of the psukim themselves. We know that Rabbi Shmuel did that as well, but Rabbi Akiva had a very big part in that. Um, and it's interesting to see how sort of the um, the drashoda, the halachic approach, or the ability to expound upon psukim of Rabbi Akiva is really singled out here. Um, I actually just finished reading. Uh, the book, The the Orchard by Yochi Branris, <laughs> which I don't know if anybody else has read, which sort of takes a lot of these stories about Rabbi Akiva was translated into English and the times of the Tanaim 
uh, and sort of brings it into novel form, you would probably recognize if you read that book, many of the uh, stories that are in there. Uh, but it, this passage sort of reminded me of that because it, 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 the book spends a lot of time sort of speaking about what was singularly different about Rabbi Akiva. Um, and so this is one of the passages that really speaks to that. But then the Gemara goes on to something else interesting. And I know that we've spoken before about how Mishnah and all of the Tanaitic literature that really was produced was all meant to be uh, memorized, right? And then passed down that way. When we talk about oral law or Torah Shabbat being written down, wasn't written down and printed in books the way that we do today. It may have been written down, but it certainly wasn't widely disseminated the way that we do because they just didn't have printing the way that we do. Um, and so the Gemara sort of mentions here what I almost like to think of like early tradition of like, how did we make sure that we could remember things? I'm a Rabbi Abba, who's Rabbi Abba says, Ketiv mishpachot sofrim yoshev yavet. Right, so here he's quoting a pasuk that's in Divrei Hayamim Aleph, Perak Bet, pasuk uh, Nun Hey. Um, and this is a pasuk that's talking about who were the descendants of Salma, who was the son of Kalev. Um, and one of the things it says is that, that they were basically, they were a family of scribes, right? Mishpachot Sofrim, who lived in Yavetz. Ma Tamid Lamar Sofrim. What does it mean by saying that they were Sofrim? So it means that they organized the Torah into, um, into lists. Um, and then it says, So now they're going to give a list of these examples. So, for example, that there were five who cannot separate truma. There are five types of grains which are obligated to chal. I'm not going to read all of them, but that basically many of these types of lists that we're familiar with, even concluding with avot malachot arba'im chaserachad, right, that there are 39 malachot, um, that, you know, this is what they did is they organized, uh, they, organi they were able to organize things. What's interesting to me about this is, is that this is listing a group of people, right, um, who are essentially um, came before, where they're basically descendants of Kalev. Um, and these are people who sort of come, they're associated with the time of where Torah Shabbat was there. But this is well before Torah Shabbat was even sort of thought of to be written down. And we're already ascribing that there was a group of people who were already sort of making lists and sort of transmitting things in a certain way or sort of organizing it to, for us. So it's, I would just encourage everybody to open up that parak in Divrei Hayamim because I think it just shows you that this idea of sort of organization, of memorization, they're trying to tie it to a period that's much, much earlier than the period of the Tanaim. So I found that to be uh, interesting. Um, and then finally, it concludes with one more. Amar Rabiacha, Rabiacha says, Ketiv, uh, right, so this is quoting a pasuk here um, that is in Ezra chapter 7, uh, verse 11, right? And so it says to Ezra the Kohen, the Sofer, right? And we've talked about that before, that he's always described as a scribe. Um, what does it mean that he was a Sofer? Um, and, and it says the word Sofer twice, actually, in that pasuk, and that's really what the question is. Just as he counted, right, not just scribe, but here's Sofer, like he counts the words of the written Torah, he also counted the words of the sages. So it's when we get to the time of Ezra, that there sort of seems to be sort of this meshing of the two together. So I just always like these passages 
where the Gemara is a little bit meta about itself um, and, uh, and, and, you know, sort of getting into, but the idea of organization of the Torah, you know, giving lists and ways to memorize things seems to exist well before the period of the Tanayim. Well, I think also this discussion of Ezra, right, the time of Ezra, um, may also explain how it's justifiable to say that Petachia is also Mordechai, right? Which is, as I say, I would think that it, Mordechai is great enough that they would just call him Mordechai and they would not need to give him, you know, no matter how much he's interpreting and no matter how wise he's in other ways, I would think that there's no need to go there. Um, but, and and therefore my inclination would be to say, why, why are they conflating two different people? Except for perhaps if we're really talking about the era of, you know, following the Shiva Tzion, Mordechai was an old man. He came back. Okay. Yeah. So I, I just the, the whole notion of the generations is very interesting here. I think it is very interesting. I just want to note, and I'm actually not going to read it inside. I just want to note that the the famous donkey of Rav Pinchas Ben Yair that we mentioned several days ago um, is on this daf where you know the donkey was stolen by robbers, and then he come, then he's found and brought back, and he won't eat anything. And the concern is, you know, they finally they get him to eat by by giving him to making sure that the food that was given to him, the barley, whatever, the grain that was given to him, has been tithed, and not only that, the thing that was taken that not only was Tevel tithed, right? Tevel is that which has not been tithed at all, but also Demai, that which is uh, a question whether it's been tithed. And lo and behold, this is a very righteous animal. And of course, the discussion then goes to say like, wait a minute, shouldn't animals not need this kind of tithing? And and the answer is kind of like, yeah, what are you going to do? He is a pious donkey, which I think is um, a lovely story and worth reading inside. Yeah, and it's always interesting when they sort of want to ascribe animals and there's a few of these stories you know throughout the Gemara of an animal of a holy person who also sort of behaves let's say halachically um I just want to point out two other uh pieces here that I'm not going to necessarily read inside but the Gemara gets into an interesting discussion about Sakya who apparently understood all languages and they tell these two stories where he um was uh, with a um, with an Elaine, right? Somebody who was a deaf mute. And both of these stories involved that they, you know, there was a shortage of crops of some sort and they didn't know where they were going to get the barley for the Omer. And uh, a, a, an Elaine came and basically did some type of hand motion, right? One was like he put his um, hands on a roof and one of his hands on a hut and the other one was he puts his hands on, on his eye and then on a door socket. And then based on that, Sakya is sort of able to understand where the barley is. And they were able to get the grain in order to bring the Korban Omer. What was interesting to me about this was not just that it's sort of an early form, let's say, of some type of communication with somebody who is deaf and can't speak, but more that we have seen before sort of the halachic category of this, uh, you know, of the Elaine that they do not participate in a lot of mitzvot. And here's a story where we see that there's really very high intelligence on the part of the Elaine. And so it's sort of making me rethink that I think sometimes, you know, when we think about the category of the deaf mute and why they don't participate in uh, certain mitzvot, that I don't know, I think I always sort of understood it was because, you know, communication was difficult. Maybe we didn't understand that there 
was more intelligence there. Like today we would understand we would have different ways of communicating with somebody who has those challenges. And we would totally understand that they very much understand the world around them. But here we have a story where it's the Elaine who solves the problem. Um, and I just, I, again, it's one of these things where like, I need to really think about it, but just comparing it to where the deaf mute is, you know, what we say about the deaf mute with other halakhic categories, they, they, it just seems so, um, doesn't seem consistent to me because here it's the Elaine who very smartly uh, is able to help everybody. Like that, to me, that's the hero of the story. Not Sakhia who understood the Elaine. And very quick, the last thing I wanted to just point out, Anne, which I thought was kind of funny, is, you know, when we see the thing about the doctor at the end, or sort of this, this intestinal issues that they would treat for. And so the Gemara basically says, well, why did they need a doctor? And then it basically says, because the Kohanim walked on barefoot on the stone floors, they ate a lot of meat, and they drank a lot of water. And, you know, I just found this interesting, because we particularly in Sakhim, where we saw all that stuff about like how much meat they were eating as you know, and you're reading it and you're like, Oh, this diet cannot be good. Here is sort of an acknowledgement. Like, yeah, this was not always the healthiest way to eat. <laughs> and the Kohanim definitely had trouble because of it. Uh, yeah. Okay. Fair enough. I mean, I think that, right. When we think about the Sakhakal, the sum total of the, the diet of the Kohanim, they they did have the menachot, right? They did have green offerings, their portion of it every day. And they did have, you know, trumata maestrot of vegetables and of fruit. Like, I, I, it's, I imagine that there were spates, you know, times where the diet was not so healthy. But I'm not sure that the overall intent all the time, you know, besides the fact that they're coining more rotating through the beta migdash all the time. And then they go home and they have whatever they would eat at home. Uh, meaning... I'm not discounting the the tummy troubles. I'm just saying that I feel like it's not the whole story. Yep, that may be the case. Well, that's our top discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about the stuff on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.